in this sport, it's all about the Olympics. Right? I mean, that is the pinnacle. And that there were athletes who had won world championships and had been ranked number one in the world and had even broken world records that had that sort of, but never won an Olympics. And I didn't want to be one of those. So from 1992, so going through 93, 94, I'm thinking these things. And I'm thinking, okay, so 96, though, I'm not going to play it safe. But I had to start that, and you just touched on it. I had to start that in 1995. So 95 World Championships was the first time I doubled the 200 and 400. And I had to do that there as a sort of dress rehearsal, number one, for myself and for my coach for us to figure out, yeah, what sort of mindset shift do we need to be able to, because the 200 and 400 meters are very different races. And they certainly were then because no one had ever put those two races together. Hello and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham and in these discussions I explore how we perform, how we support others to perform and the underpinning knowledge and concepts at play. Now the reference point is sporting performance, coaching, performance science, athlete experience but equally I'm fascinated by other performance fields too such as the military or performing arts. And the one thing that you will get from listening to the Supporting Champions podcast is variety, because it's my firm belief that supporting ourselves, supporting others to perform requires diversity of thought, breadth and perspective to complement our natural inclination for deep expertise. I hope you enjoyed the conversation in today's episode or from the back catalogue. And if you do, please subscribe to the show. Leave a review on iTunes in particular. That really helps the show. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then tell a friend, colleague or share what you've enjoyed on social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This week's guest is Michael Johnson. Now, Michael will not need introduction to many of you but for those of you who are not aware of one of the greatest athletes of all time and for those of you who want to recap here are a few of the highlights michael has won gold medals in the 200 meters 400 meters and 4 by 400 meters at the goodwill games he took gold medals at the 1991 1993 1995 1997 and 1999 world championships and golds at the 1992, 1996 and 2000 Olympics. Unforgettably, Michael broke the world 200 metre record in an astonishing time of 19.32 seconds to win the gold medal at the Atlanta 1996 Games, having a few days before won the 400 metre title. Michael also broke the world record in the Seville World Championship final in a time of 43.18 seconds. Those records stood for 14 and 17 years, respectively. Since Michael retired, he's familiar to many as a commentator and pundit for athletics, where he offers great depth, perceptive insight, challenge and clarity of thought about performance. Michael's also an entrepreneur running Michael Johnson Performance, which provides speed, agility and injury prevention support to elite athletes. In this discussion, we, of course, talk about all of these things, Michael's athletic career, as well as how he's cultured insights into how people perform, where he thinks athletics is going and his work in business. And as you'd expect, Michael brings rich insight to all of these things. I hope you enjoy the conversation. 
Well, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Um, so delighted to to have you on. Um, I'm not quite sure where to start, though. I'm torn between your athletic career, how you've cultured insights into how people perform, uh, where you think athletics is going. It seems like a trend on your Twitter feed, at least your business, my MJ performance. Um, so, so many different directions. Maybe I could ask um, how you are at the moment uh, since your stroke. Yeah, doing. I'm doing well. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe with that, uh, <laughs> but not knowing where to start means I'm doing too many things. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting though as as well because I remember you know when I first retired from my my athletic career, thinking, yeah, I spent the last really about 15 years of my life at that point doing the same thing every day, which I loved, but waking mm. up every day, you know, with one objective, you know, to run faster every single day, uh, which I loved again. But yeah, so I was kind of like, yeah, when I, when I, uh, when I finished now that I'm going to retire from this career, um, yeah, I want to do something different every day. So, so I've always, since that time, you know, sort of been involved in you know, a few different things that, that keep me, um, you know, interested in a variety of different, you know, goals and challenges to deal with. So that's always been for the last now, uh, what, uh, 20 plus years, uh, 25 or so years. Yeah, it's been, um, <clears throat> it's been something different, you know, sort of every day. Um, so which is cool. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, you asked about the strokes so yeah, that was, that was one that I didn't plan to yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't plan to take on that challenge, but uh, it was certainly one of the bigger challenges of my life back in 2018. Um, and uh, fortunately, yeah, I was able to make a make a full recovery and, and and able to do so relatively quick. So haven't had any any issues since since then. But uh, certainly, that was a that was a huge one. I saw an interview back in 2018 and um, it was on the BBC website and you referenced how you were scared at the time, not knowing how your life was going to be. And how did you cope with that? And I believe you talked a little bit about applying an Olympian mindset to that. So how did you respond and, and how did you then look forward? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when I, after suffering the stroke and I'm, I'm there in the hospital, um, for, for a week or so, almost a week. And, um, you know, just being told that, yeah, I had a stroke and, and that, you know, laying there, I can't walk and, and can't, um, and don't have much, uh, coordination and lack of movement on my left side and my left arm and left leg. Um, yeah, that's it's pretty scary initially, but you know how do I cope with it? Um, you know, I think what the, the the single most important component to my dealing with that situation, and then also my recovery was shortly after. You know, the fear, you know, and that, and experiencing that initial just shock and fear that. Oh my God, you know, yeah, I've had a stroke and I can't walk. I may not be able to walk for the rest of my life. I may not be able to, you know, do things on my own. I may not be able to have 
the same sort of lifestyle and livelihood and active life that I've that I've had all my life and, and, and since my even since retiring from my athletic career. I mean, after getting over that initial fear, you know, I remember being there in the hospital with my wife and we were talking about, you know, <clears throat> um, I was thinking, I remember saying to her, you know, and I was like, well, you know, this has happened to me. And I remember I said, I'm, you know, why not me? You mm. know, you know, because typically you, you sort of, because our first engine is why me? But then, you know, because I was doing all of the right things. I was keeping myself fit. I eat right. I've never smoked. I'm not overweight. I train, you know, four or five times a week. And I was actually doing a finishing a training session when I had the stroke. So I've been doing all of the right things. So why me? But immediately I thought, well, why not me? And no, I've kind of said you you're the only person that would probably say something like that in this moment. And and I was like, Yeah, but you know, look how lucky we've been, you know, because I would always ask myself as well, when good things were happening, when I'm breaking world records and like, why me? You know. <laughs> so and then I was like, why not me? Yeah, you know, so the same thing sort of applies and I think, you know, that moment we just talked about, you know, at that point I was fifty years old about to be 51, um, had had no real major tragedies in my life, no, you know, nothing, you know, just been very fortunate for 50 years of my life, extremely fortunate, and I always knew that. And my wife sort of felt the same. We both shared that sort of feeling that we've been really, really lucky and very fortunate. So, you know, while so many other people, and I've spent a lot of my life helping people who aren't as fortunate, and so... You know, so the, I think that perspective of, you know, well, I'm still here and I always figure out a way. And so if I can't walk, you know, or if I can have, if I have limited mobility or whatever the situation is going to be, I'll figure it out and I'll figure out how to make the best of it. But, you know, I've been lucky to this point. If this is going to be the worst of it, I'm going to figure out how to make the best of it and move on. And, so, um, so yeah, I mean, so I think that that was probably the single most uh, critical part of, you know, dealing with the initial fear and, and shock of, you know, the situation. Uh, that sounds like a very grounded, um, grateful perspective to to ch- take on that particular challenge. Is that, is that something that was a new experience for you or was that something that would you would live every day uh, uh when you're training when you're competing of being able to appreciate the opportunity whilst you're doing that so you just you were able to apply that perspective of gratitude to to the new experience yeah it's a, it's a great question um so i think that that is you know that's one of the things that you know you hear a lot of people when they have an experience like this saying oh, i learned to really appreciate life or i learned this thing from it and and it's a really and, and most of the time it's a very difficult and long journey to get to that point the reason i was able to get to that point so quickly uh coming from a position of gratitude and to be more grounded about the situation as difficult and as scary as it was, is having always already been in that space, having always already thought that way and taken a much more, as a good friend of mine wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago about being neutral 
um, in most situations and the benefits of being neutral, you know, and, and thinking neutrally. Um, I've always been that way. Um, and there, there were two things that really, um, you know, were just instrumental to my ability to overcome that situation fairly quickly. That's one, having always already had that sort of mindset of, of being neutral about situations and not allowing myself to get too far down or too high up, um, no matter what the situation is. And also, yeah, having that feeling of gratitude for what I have and how fortunate I have been, um, that helped from a mental standpoint. But from a physical standpoint as well, I was I had such a good base of strength and 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 fitness that I was able to, you know, go into rehab and you know and excel from a very from the very beginning. Um, partially because of yeah, you know, having experienced you know the the marginal gains of being an Olympian and trying to eke out you know tiny little incremental improvements every day and understanding setbacks and how to stay motivated when <clears throat> when the training isn't going that great you know that that was certainly helpful to my recovery process but also you know given that my left side was so significantly uh challenged uh, as a result of the stroke i was strong enough on my right side that you know, I could compensate and get around and be mobile and not have to, you know, have too much help and, and able to, to really, you know, continue to and pick up at a pretty good, good, uh, good, good place, uh, given that. So, so for, from both of those perspectives, mentally and physically, having already had a good baseline of where I was coming from allowed me to be able to, uh, to recover much quickly. So your whole athletic career was setting you up massively for an amazing prehab state. Uh, so were, you, were you already starting to think about your ground contact times on your left side? <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely, yeah. Those, I mean, it's it, it crazy just how so much of what I was having to, um, you know, deal with and, and focus on in the rehab uh, process was was similar to what I was dealing with and, and working on as a, as a world class athlete very, very similar. And, and the mindset was very similar. The, the, the level of focus required was very similar. And that's one of the things I talk about a lot now with uh, people who have suffered a stroke, um, trying to help them because they, a lot of, most of them don't have the benefit of having been an Olympian for, you know, you know, 10 years and, you know, and trying, you know, and, and being in that mindset every day as a career where you're honing the skill to be able to you know, focus on this improvement um, as a singular focus. They most don't have that, and, and which is why a lot of people give up. You can imagine a, a stroke recovery, a stroke victim in recovery, you know, working really hard, you know, to, in rehab to regain their mobility. And, you know, and, and two days in a row, you go out and you work really hard and you feel like you got worse. Well, then you want to give up. You know, because it's that improvement that keeps you going. But as an Olympic athlete, you know, there are, there are going to be days where you're going to go out there and you're going to train really hard and you're going to feel like you got worse and you're not, you don't allow that to get you down. You come back out the next day, you know, and continue to work. Um, so yeah, those are, those, 
certainly was was extremely helpful for me. Yeah, okay. And I suppose it's difficult to look back at your career, or certainly as an observer and as as an a spectator of athletics. I can certainly think of a few setbacks you've had, but you've had mostly highs. You know, the the, the your track record. You can see it in your Twitter bio of uh, of no, so many golds, but very few silvers. Um, I, I presume Barcelona was a big setback in terms of um, just not going according to plan or an opportunity not taking itself for you. Yeah, and I was very, you know, as, as difficult as that situation where I was getting food poisoning just before the Olympics, my first Olympics, when I'm an overwhelming favorite to win and the world champion and, you know, should have won that race, you know, to go away, you know, not even making the final uh, was, was absolutely difficult. But good thing was, um, you know, out of three Olympics that I had the opportunity to to go to that was my first one so yeah you know i learned some some great lessons from that um you know i i it's not one of those things and i'm not one of those people that are going to say well if i could do it over i would you know i wouldn't change anything no if i could do it over i wouldn't have gotten food poison i would have won that <laughs> so, mm. you know uh you know if it, it, it it remains one of the great disappointments of, of my career and of my life. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that, that ability, that's when I first sort of learned the ability to not get too low on things. And because that's a point where as an athlete, you can dip into a spiral and maybe never come out of it where you start, because there was a moment after that, that game when obviously very disappointed, um, where I started to doubt myself. Started to doubt my abilities and doubt my talent, um, and you know the reality of the situation, which I quickly, thankfully, was able to sort of get myself to, was that you know over the last two years I haven't lost a single race, other than the big one, the one that I wanted most. Yes, it's the one that I wanted most, but it's one of you know seventy-five races that I've run over the last two years and that's the only one I lost. So when the season starts next year, the odds are overwhelmingly in my favor, barring me getting food poisoning again, that I'm going to be winning the races again. And there's a world championship next year. And there's a, another world championship two years after that. And then there's an Olympics in my own country three years from now. So, you know, that's how I was able to sort of, you know, be realistic about the situation, not get too down. I did allow myself to be upset and be angry and, and sad and all of those things, but um, it was important to to be realistic that, you know, losing one race, even though it's the big one and the one you wanted most, and you have to wait another four years for another opportunity for that, you know, the Olympics, that's, that, that's the reality, and that's all true, but it doesn't mean that I'm not any good. It doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, metal worthy. It doesn't mean that I don't have the talent um, because yeah, all of the people that did win the medals, I'd beaten each one of those people multiple times over the last two years. It's certainly one of the surprises and not being an elite athlete myself and having worked with Olympic champions over the years. It's one of the the things that I was certainly first struck with that that people would be talking about those doubts. The some, some people, the, the, some of the demons, but but ultimately, um, dri- helping that 
as a source of inspiration to then take action. Is that was that something that you had to work on daily in terms of the uh, doubts that arise in your mind and that you might have to reframe, readjust, undertake some mental skills, work with your coach on? Um, or was it something that you had periods of confidence that would that would wane and um, with form and that you would have to sort of coach yourself through? No, again, I think, you know, one of the real benefits that I had was that that experience in Barcelona in 1992 was early in my professional career. It was my first Olympics. It was my, my second major championship. And so, you know, I learned so much from that experience about myself and about confidence. I learned from some positive experiences as well that same year. I mean, that that, that Olympic trials that year in 1992 before the Barcelona Olympics was probably one of the most difficult situations competitively that I ever found myself in. It was arguably the most competitive 200-meter race I had ever run. Um, I found myself in the final. Five of the eight people in that final were ranked in the top 10 in the world. Only three of us can make the team. We just take the top three, first three across the finish time go to the olympics and if you're not one of those three regardless of how good you are you don't go um and i found myself qualified for the final and out in lane eight and i just and, and it was a, a very interesting process that i had to go through to to find my confidence to be able to win that race from out in lane eight um because it's it's very difficult to run out there you typically mm -hmm. you know you know we talk a lot in track about race execution, which is very important. You go into the race with a plan and, and, and you're primarily focused on how you execute that plan. But I think sometimes people forget because we talk so much about that, that it's still a race. You're still racing against other people. And if you can't see any of those people because you're out in lane eight, that takes away a huge advantage and ability for you to actually win the race. So, and that's what I found myself with um going into that final that I'm gonna be out in lane eight in you know the most important race of my life and with the, the most competitive race of my life and I've got to finish top three and five of the people in this race are are the best in the world, the absolute best in the world. That could five of the people in this race could win the gold medal when we get to the Olympics. So um but I was able through that situation to overcome and I learned how I overcame it and the process that I that I uh, that I went through to overcome uh, the fear and the concerns and, and regain my confidence. Uh, it, it, that experience and the experience later that year in Barcelona, which was the opposite, wasn't a high and a, and a, and a success. It was a failure. Uh, but both of those situations um, sort of really shaped my ability to go into any race, any championship, any situation injury you know new challenger you know whatever it might be you know hometown favorite face of the olympics in 96 um you know 2000 sydney olympics going in injured with no mm -hmm. races to prepare for all of those situations i was able to deal with all of those situations as well as challenges that i had you know from a business standpoint after i retired from the sport all the way through to my stroke 
and overcoming that based on a lot of what I learned that year. Mm. Can I can I ask you about 1991? I remember watching that. I mean, it was a hell of a championships anyway, but it, the I think you ran 20.01 into a three-meter-plus wind. Was that ever a source of, oh, I'm quite good at this, <laughs> um, a reminder? that Because I remember watching that just and doing the maths and just thinking, okay, the world record is under threat at some point in this guy's career, which you saw through. Um, those experiences of running fast and winning gold medals, um, was that also a, a source of ratification for your abilities? Yeah, I think more of a, you know, you know as you say, ratification or validation, you know, to myself, you know, winning my first world championship that year and in such commanding fashion um, was, was sort of, you know, proved what I had believed for a few years at that point. I mean, my, my college career uh, at Baylor University, uh, that four years was, was, uh, was um, marked by you know, repeated injuries that I had to overcome, but also flashes of absolute brilliance and potential that had never been seen before in the sport. And I saw it, I knew it, my coach saw it, and he knew it, and even competitors and the U.S. Olympic coaches in 1988 when I was just in my second year of university thought, thought this guy's going to be on the Olympic team, not only as a 200-meter runner, but if he wants, 400 meters if he wants, but certainly on our 4 by 400 meter relay because of the times that I was running when I wasn't injured. So I knew that I had that potential. Um it was just a matter of, and it wasn't a matter even of whether or not I knew how to compete. It wasn't a matter of whether I was dedicated to the training. It wasn't a matter of whether I could mentally deal with the pressure to compete. It all came down to one thing, and that was overcoming the injuries. And once I was able to do that, um, then you know everything else was exactly what I expected. And so going into... 96, as you say, home games, face of the games. And it's a rarity to to see somebody who has that pressure, uh, that status put put upon them to succeed in the way that you did. What, what was different in the lead up to 96? That, because you ran, what, 1966 at the US trials, I believe. Um, and so you took the world record. What was different in the lead up to 96 in terms of your preparation and uh, physically and mentally? So not much because okay. we had already, so if you think back to the year we started, because we started the process two years before. Um, so the, 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 the period between what we just talked about earlier, the, the failure in 1992 to win the Olympic gold medal and, and the um, 200 meters, I did win a gold medal as part of the 4x400 meter relay and the 4x4, but, um, but um, which at the time was no consolation for me. I'm very proud of that medal now, but at that time it, was, it, was, it, it didn't mean much to me. Um, but um, but those those few years in between were all focused on in preparation for doing something very special at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. 
when I started my professional career in, in, in 1990, I started it with a bang, making history, doing things that no one had ever done before. I ended that season ranked number one. My first professional season, I ended it ranked number one in the world in the 200 and 400. No one had ever done that. And I was also athlete of the year. And so then I come back in 1991 and I win the world championships in commanding fashion, like you mentioned. Um, largest lead, I believe, of a 200-meter championship since Jesse Owens back in 1936. So it was, it was. I started my season that way, and I expected to, you know, that the 1992 Olympics was going to be just another, you know, sort of you know, um, accolade that's going to continue to submit me in my career as one of the best and one of the most unique talents ever, because I believe that. Um, from from those those days, um, uh, university given the potential that I had shown. So when '92 didn't happen, then I thought, okay, you know, it, it, now I have to sort of accelerate this. I have to, you know, you know, many many people when I said I was going to attempt the 200 or 400 meters at the Olympics in '96 thought, you know, well that's silly. You know, you should focus on one. You can win either one. And so far, you are still not an individual Olympic gold medalist. And that was very um, uh, evident to me and weighing on me as well. Um, even, though you won 90, even though you won 200 and 495? No, but Olympics. Yeah. So, I mean, in this, in this, in this sport, it's all about the Olympics. Hey, I mean, that is the pinnacle. And that there were athletes who had won world championships and had been ranked number one in the world and had even broken world records that had that sort of, but never won an Olympics. And I didn't want to be one of those. So from 1992, so going through 93, 94, I'm thinking these things. And I'm thinking, okay, so 96, though, I'm not going to play it safe. But I had to start that, and you just touched on it. I had to start that in 1995. So 95 World Championships was the first time I doubled the 200 and 400. And I had to do that there as a sort of dress rehearsal, number one, for myself and for my coach for us to figure out, yeah, what sort of mindset shift do we need to be able to, because the 200 and 400 meters are very different races. And they certainly were then because no one had ever put those two races together. Um, now you see a lot more athletes doubling kind of back and forth, maybe not at, at major championships, but they do run them for it. Um, so, so it was new. So, uh, yeah, we had to start back in 95. So that was sort of a dress rehearsal for that to, to figure out mentally, you know, how do I, I, I sort of focus on the two and in the same championship? How do we keep them separate from a mental standpoint? Physically, how do we need to train for that many races? This was a time when there's four rounds of each race. There are three now, but there were four then. Um, so, and, and then also, because the schedule didn't even allow for an Olympic mm. double, we had to, to go to the World Championships and, and prove to uh, World Athletics, which was the International Olympic, uh, the IAAF at that point, and, and, and the IOC, we had to prove to them both that yeah, I can do this. So you should change the schedule and, and put a little pressure on them from a fan standpoint, a media standpoint that, yeah, you need to do this because people want to see Michael do this. So 95 was when we sort of made changes and shifts in how we train and how I approach it mentally to be able to go into 96 and 
double. The only thing that we had to do in 96, particularly in that year and in the months since or so leading up to it, was figure out how to deal with the pressure of expectation and the scrutiny around, well, I'm the face of this games and everybody wants to know what I'm doing and how I'm preparing and all of these different things. And so we had to, to figure out how to navigate that, which was which was a bit, a bit tricky with my manager and with my agent, my entire team, just figuring out how how to, how to you know, to, to protect me so that I could stay focused and, uh, and, and achieve the objective. And any insights into how you coped? Um, but I'm taking from an implication there that you had some other people protecting you in terms of your time and your focus and, and the, the things that you could uh, put your attention to. But again, how did you cope with that that pressure, that additional pressure, it's still the same distance. It is in the hometown, but there's different expectations internally, externally. How did you cope? Yeah, so one of the things that, you know, my coach and I were, 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 were um, you know, aware of how I performed best, when I performed best, what, under what circumstances. And um, so, so we... We started there. Um, the one thing that we had a huge advantage, just a huge natural advantage, is that I like pressure. I'm at my best under pressure. But the key to that, the key to producing under that sort of pressure and being able to, you know, stay on the right side of that fine line between, you know, having that pressure um, be a motivator and an inspiration. Um, versus it sort of taking control of you and paralyzing you through the fine line and trying to stay on the right side of that. You have to really know yourself as an individual really well. Um, and, and then you have to, to, um, to be able to, to execute, you know, um, the entire situation or navigate rather the entire situation. Um, ensuring that you're always on on that right side and that you're you know right there where you need to be and so we were able to do that by um you know controlling the things that we can control um and making sure that anything that we can control making sure that we actually are controlling it and um and then also being as well flexible enough to be able to make the right decisions and not be thrown by situations that we can't control when those situations arise. So that's the balance. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate one because those are sort of contradictory. And, um, so, you know, you, you, you get into this thing of, you know, being absolutely in control, but also being flexible enough, um, uh, for the unexpected. And being prepared for the unexpected, so um, so it was that, and then it was also you know simple things as well, like um, you know my coach and I at that point had you know I had been on uh, for you know every year I was on a major you know U.S. national team competing globally in a championship and a global championship. Every single one of those times. You know, we came out on top and we, we got in the final and we won the gold medal when we're there, other than 92. And each time we're in a foreign country and we learned really, really well how to navigate 
foreign countries and foreign situations where we're not at home. So we wanted to duplicate that. So, you know, the games are here in the U.S., but fortunately, you know, I'm not from Atlanta. I'm from Dallas, so it's not my city, although I knew the city well, and, and it still sort of feels like home because it's in America. So we tried to, you know, uh, you know, shun any opportunities. We had lots of opportunities to sort of make it even more like home, and we decided, no, we're not, not going to make it more like home. We're going to keep, you know, we prefer it be what we're used to. You know, being, you know, in a foreign situation, staying in a hotel, you know, a good friend of my coaches had a really nice house there in Atlanta, I remember, and he said, hey, you know, we're, we're leaving for the games. You're welcome to stay, keep our house, you know, and, and make it your, your base. And, and and we thought about it, and we remember going there on one of my trips to Atlanta prior to the games, and, and I thought, this is a really nice house, it'd be great. And I was like, no. You know, I'll, I'll let my family stay here, but I'm going to stay in a hotel because that's what I'm used to and that's what works for me. Mm. So simulating the competition mindset that, that you said you respond well to pressure, that only really, I guess, comes authentically at least at competition time. And so you're in embracing that situation rather than making it more comfortable. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? No, it's not that. I mean, yes, somewhat, but I think it's it's a bit different than that. What it is 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 understanding how you perform best and what's you know sort of the skill we had honed and my coach had honed was hey, we know how to navigate these types of situations. It's not it's not a matter of making myself more uncomfortable because I'm okay. used to being uncomfortable. It's be it's making myself more comfortable with the familiar specific and in this case the familiar the familiar is the unfamiliar and, and you know and you know and and, and you know, like a, a good example is you know uh, i think it's you know just to elaborate on the whole situation you know where typically we think well if i'm in a home i'm in a house more space more room have more control over my environment than, a, than in a hotel that's going to be better for me. But if every time you've ever succeeded, it's been because you're in this hotel and you can order room service and, you know, and actually you have more privacy because I have my room and I'm always in the suite and I've got a little space to move around as opposed, you know, and, and, um, and I have all of my, you know, I sleep here and I have all of my stuff over there and, you know, and all of these different things that you just get into this routine for every championship that puts you in a situation where mentally, emotionally, you're kind of, yeah, I'm comfortable and I'm in competition mode that I, that feels good to me, feels familiar to me at least anyway. So I'm going to duplicate that. So from... 
And and was there a an increasing diligence as you went from that from ninety two through to ninety six? Was there an increased improvement in your nutrition, your training methods, your recovery methods? Uh, because I mean, it's one of the things that I've noticed since you've retired is that you're a real student of of the sport, but also of the underpinning knowledge behind it. And so I'm interested to, to know where that sort of sparked about where you started to really lean in and to understanding the, the things that can contribute to your performance and when that, when you might have actually began to utilize those. Yeah. So there were two major shifts for me. So, um, from the time when, when I was experiencing all of the injuries in, uh, in, in university, I realized that, you know, because I never liked strength training and I wasn't as dedicated to it as I was to my track training. I loved running on the track. Coach didn't have to look for me or ask me twice or wonder if I'm there. I was there early and left late and would do everything that he wanted me to do and even more. Uh, I just wanted to run, loved running. Um, and it was hard, but I, I loved it. Versus strength training, weightlifting, never liked it. Um, and, and just wasn't as dedicated to it. And I realized eventually that I'm going to have to commit as much to the strength training uh, as I do to my track training. Um, and, um, and and once I did that, the results were, yeah, I finished finally in, in, in my final season of, of university without any injuries and went on immediately transitioned directly from the NCAA championship in May to June, um, you know, running on the professional circuit around the world and then finished that year in September, um, uh, ranked number one in the world at 200 and 400. So it was a, a miraculous um, shift uh, uh, based on me committing to one of the fundamentals, um, strength training for a sprinter that I had ignored for and, and just tried to, to do it my way, you know, without, you know, uh, without, you know, addressing the fundamentals okay. um, for three years. Uh, so that was one first major shift. The next shift was, yes, after 92, I started to think a bit more about how do I, you know, get the best from myself. I'm not getting the best. I'm doing really well and I'm running fast enough to beat everyone else. But, you know, I started to think a lot about how do I get the best. Um, and so, yeah, there was a bit of a shift in my strength training program again, um, rest and recovery, um, and starting to really prioritize and be even more active with rest and recovery as opposed to just, okay, shut it down, lay down, don't do anything for a few hours, you know, every day. To started to get into actually rest, um, active recovery and things like that. So, so that was a bit of a shift um, at, at that point as well. Mm. And um, and moving out of ninety six to sort of two thousand, you mentioned further injuries coming back to you. Did you notice that a need for any changes in your approach to training and preparation as you got older? Yeah. So after ninety six, uh, injuries came back, and um, so one of the things I had was uh, you know, chronic uh, Achilles tendonitis. So I had to shift uh, my footwear into what I train in and how I train. Coach had to make some adjustments from that standpoint. Yeah. I started to have some significant problems with my um, my hip and pelvis uh, alignment and lower back alignment. So that um, you know I would constantly. Uh, 
get myself out of alignment, which, uh, you know, my structural alignment around my hip area was really problematic. And it would then just sort of down the chain through the hamstring and knee, calf, Achilles, all the way down on either side. There could be any, you know, uh, sort of nickel injury at any moment um, during training uh, or, or even during warm-up for a race. So um, I was working um, quite uh, quite heavily with my uh, physical therapist on that. And then I got to a point where I actually had to have him travel with me to every competition. Um, so I had to hire him away from his business to to come in and you know through the summer and work with me and be with me at, at every every competition. So there were a lot of different changes that I had to make from that standpoint. Um, so by the end of my career in two thousand, I was you know one of the things that was that was just a real nuisance was just yeah you know, trying to manage the injury situation. I was I was managing it for for years, but that was one of the things that probably. Um, that was one of the things that um, that um, you know probably made me so so ready to move on, you know, and move move away from the sport because just the managing of injuries is just extremely tiring. Do you, do you know why that might have occurred? And it's always difficult to put your pinpoint on um, on a cause for an injury. But do you know why? Whether it was training volume related or anything that particularly aggravated it that. Um, no, it, it was for me, it was structural. It was a structural issue that, you know, I had, you know, that I've had all my life. And uh, the way that my, um, you know, the musculoskeletal system, you know, is, is structured, you know, it, you know, it, it, I'm more prone to that particular, the, the hip injury issue, um, uh, the alignment issue. And, um, and it was, it was something that, um, you know, Every athlete um, has their you know, sort of issues, and as you're younger, they are less likely to to be a problem. But as you get older, and the more you know volume you put on your body, the more likely they are to become more problematic. Didn't seem to hold back your performance in Seville for the 400. Did you? You just hit a sweet spot, a bit like Kelly Holmes in 2004, where you're actually in good shape and leading into a competition, you're able to execute the race and take the world record. No, so so for the for injuries are are you know injuries are are, are injuries, and and what they do is, is they will you know when they occur, occur, it either you know prohibits you from performing or prohibits you from. Uh, from training and then you have to rehab and get back but when you're healthy you know they don't uh, you know it's not like it's not like the injuries that I was experiencing are going to be equal to a you know 10 percent you know or 15 percent or 20 percent you know reduction in speed or reduction in ability to execute execute the race or reduction in, it's not a reduction in anything other than the amount of healthy days you have to train, <laughs> you know, and uh, so so that's what you're managing. So, you know, the '99 season, I was relatively healthy. Um, by that time, now I'm three years into um, managing these injuries that have reoccurred now, um, and so we figured out, you know, quite well how to manage it, and and so we were able to do so quite 
well. So I was able to have a fairly healthy season that year. I still had some things creep up. But um, and the same thing in 2000. I mean, I was still, I mean, I was in some of the best shape of my life from a competition and speed and strength and power standpoint. And certainly at that point, with the amount of experience and the number of races and fast races under my belt and, and world records under my belt, I was in position and in shape to to go and, and um, you know, when I'm healthy, to 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 run even faster and, and break those world records again. But uh, but then, you know, yeah, an injury happens at the Olympic trials and the 400 meters and the 200 meters, rather. And yeah, now I've got to go manage that through to the games in Sydney. Mm. You mentioned that by that point you were getting a little bit tired of the of the process and and um, it becoming a bit wearing. Um, do you, do you look back at those um, high points in your career much? I mean, I um, I, I remember watching the two hundred in, in Atlanta and just I was a lifeguard at the time, Michael. I mean, I, I don't know how relevant that is, but <laughs> everyone who came up to the top of the water slide, I was like, have you seen that race? Um, so they, they got, they got it at least, um, from me. Um, do you look back at those and, um, what's, what's your perspective on them? Do you, do you enjoy looking back at them or do you start nitpicking? No, no, no not at all. I, I, you know, it's obviously the, I, I, what I don't do. So that it's a good question. I get asked that question a lot. And I try to think about, you know, from, from the, perspective of the person answer asking the question or from the perspective of you know the listener you know um so what i don't do is you know sort of going through my normal weekly routine or you know or from time to time say you know i'm gonna go watch myself run in 1990 <laughs> i've never done that monday morning i've never done that get the 200 on yeah, thursday I, I, evening get the 400 on. <laughs> Right, right. I've I've never done that, but obviously, you know, it comes across. You know, social media, or I'm watching television, and something comes on, and you know, there's my race, or when I'm doing, you know, sort of, you know, uh, presentations, you know, and using the race as an example, and the video is something that I use. I, you know, I'll see it. Uh, so I've seen it many, many times since 1996 because. That was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so uh, I probably now have gotten far beyond the, you know, the nitpicking because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, oh, I could have done it because I've seen it enough times and I've seen all of those. I mean, hell, between 1996 when I ran the world record in the 4200 um, to, you know, I mean, I was trying to run faster in 97 and 98 and 99 and 2000 until I retired. So I was studying that race a lot. Same thing in '99. I was like, okay, that race wasn't the perfect. That, that I broke the 400 meter world record. That wasn't perfect. So as I went into 2000, one of the things that my, my objective was, yeah, I think I'm gonna run faster. I think I can run. I think I can get. I think I can dip under 43 seconds. And where can I do that? So I had nitpicked all of the potential areas for improvement and all of the things that I didn't do right in both of those races. You know, you know, I had done all of that before I even retired. Can I zoom out a little bit and just just uh, conscious that you you haven't just switched off from athletics. Obviously, you commentate and you provide such real depth and clarity of thought to that sort of perceptive comments about what's happening, rather than I guess sometimes some commentators can be 
um, roll out the same cliches. Um, but you've also you're also posting a lot about potential ways in which athletics could be reinvigorated. And um, I noticed a long a long post uh, a few weeks ago now about that that idea of you what your proposals would be about how you might approach taking the sport back to its either former glory days in terms of spectator numbers or engagement, or to actually advancing it further to, to taking it into a different era. What are your, what are your main thoughts about uh, that in, in taking the sport forward? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I think you know, over the last year, I've had a lot more time to, to really focus on, on the sport and think about the sport because I love the sport. And, but from the time I retired uh, until, um, until last year, my only real involvement with the sport is as, as a television pundit from, uh, with BBC. Um, that's been my, my major involvement. Um, I've been an entrepreneur and, you know, really focused on my business, which is sports performance business. And, you know, athletics are a very small part of our clientele. It's mostly football and baseball and basketball and American football, soccer, and all of those sort of you know, big team sports where all their money is. So, um, but um, as of last year, I was able to, to, to significantly extract myself from having it to be involved in day-to-day operations of that. I found myself a lot more time and started to really think about the sport and, you know, you know the issues with the sport and, um and so so yeah so you've seen a lot more vocal commentary from me about the sport itself um i've always been vocal about the sport but a lot more last since last year um and i think that there's been a lot of conversation as well given that you know for sort of um you know, several years, um, we had Usain Bolt, you know, arguably the greatest athlete, you know, um, you know, the, the sprinter, you know, greatest athlete in modern times anyway, yeah. to be in the sport. And, and, and when he retired, then there's this big void that's left and everyone's going, what's going to happen? The sport is, you know, significantly, uh, less popular at that point than it was. Um, and I think that that had, and I, I knew that that had been happening for years, even before Bolt and during my era as well. And that just because Bolt was there, it was just a camouflage for the, 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 the years that he was there. It wasn't a, a fix. I knew that. And so uh, I think a lot of people were shocked at how bad it really was after he left because he had been used as a camouflage, not used, but he had sort of been able to prop up some things and make it look like it was better than it was. So anyway, so you know, there's been a lot of talk about it since then. And so, so yeah, so you know, my perspective has always been that you know most people in the sport, um, a lot of the people who you know have these questions about well, what the, the question is, what can happen, what should happen, what should we do? And you know, most of it takes place on social media, and you know, people want to know my thoughts, and I typically would tend to not give a you know full-on sort of answer because you know you can't give a real answer this this you know in in a tweet this sport is you know it's kind of like you know you got a house that's been neglected for decades starting with a bad foundation or a leaky roof and now you got a leaky roof and a bad foundation and walls are falling down and 
you know, and there's all sorts of problems. And those problems have compounded over the decades. And then now we're still here having a conversation about, well, if we just put some paint on it, or if we just fix the roof, and that's not the situation. The problem is much worse than that. And, you know, in addition to all of that, times have changed. So the things that, you know, had you fixed back in whatever time, you know, 10 years, 20, 30 years ago, had you fixed that then and done nothing else, you'd still have a problem because times have changed. So the problem is significant. So, you know, what I, I just sort of waited and then I did put together, you know, just, okay, people want to know my ideas, here are my ideas. Um, and I put that, that together in the tweet that you mentioned. But I think what was missed by most people, because we live in a time where most people just want to know, I want to know what your idea is, and it can't be more than, you know, you know, 30 seconds of my time, <laughs> you know, it needs to take you 30 seconds to explain it. And then I just wanted to be able to quickly determine whether I agree or not. That's the world we live in. So that's what people are looking for. So, so you know, one of the things that probably was most talked about out of, you know, what I said was, was the idea that maybe people don't really, in terms of trying to gain new fans for this book, maybe you're not going to do that with the current format of the sport, which is a variety show of sprinters and runners, which are two different kind of people, by the way. I've never been a runner. I'm a sprinter. Runners aren't sprinters. You know, they're two completely different sports almost. So you got sprinters, you got runners, you got throwers, you got jumpers, and you have vaulters. That is arguably five different sports in one. That works for the Olympics but it doesn't work as a professional sport. And so me saying that maybe people won't be attracted to this sport as long as it's a variety show, and maybe the fact that also that field events, throwers and jumpers aren't the most popular, and those events take a very long time. And I know because of my work in television that it is extremely difficult to televise those and tell a story, which is essential to any sport or entertainment vehicle. Maybe those wouldn't make the cut in a professional, a true professional league, not the Olympics, not the World Championships, not Commonwealth Games or any other kind of championships. That's great. That model's not broken. But in terms of a professional sport, that may not work. And the first thing people touched on was that. Oh, well, he's saying no field events. No, oh, he's saying no field events. That's not fair. The field events, they work just as hard. That's great for federations. Federations are very you know, sort of, you know, it's an amateur model. Everybody gets treated the same. You don't, you know, extra, you know, you don't, you don't, it's not a free market, you know, capitalist type of model where it's like these mm. products sell, these don't. So the ones that are selling, those are the ones we're going to keep. And the ones that don't sell that nobody wants to buy, we're not going to waste time and resources on those because this is about making money. That's how professional sports work. So if nobody wants to see a particular event and the research shows that that event just isn't popular, if you have too many events, i.e. too many products, you're going to eliminate the ones that are least popular, the ones that are least profitable, the ones that people don't buy. Okay. What people missed 
which is probably not everyone, but a lot of people miss because again, people want to shoot 30 second, you know, kind of well, give me the solution. And I just want to see if I agree or disagree with you. What a lot of people missed in that is that the way to fix this sport or develop a professional league is not for someone like me, even though I do have significant experience in business and as an entrepreneur and as a marketer and I've been in the sport. It is not for someone like me to just say, hey, this is what I think we should do, so let's just go do that and it'll work. No business is successful. I've never had a business, and I've had a few, where we've been able to do that. We've been successful when we take our time, we research the market. We spend that time trying to understand what we don't know and learn what's going to work. What will people buy? Where is there a void that we can fill in the market? What do we need? So the first thing, and this was the most critical thing I said in that, first thing you would have to do is put together a team of experienced marketers and event promoters and event management type people and media experts, and then do the research and then determine collectively what changes do we need to make, Mm -hmm. which might include what events do we need to actually include and which ones might we need to that decision and what that's going to be and what events and that sort of thing, no one knows because no one's done the research for a professional sport. You can't just say, hey, if we take out this event or if we shift this event and make it more exciting or if we promote the athletes more, all of these simple ideas which are frustrating as hell to hear from people involved in the sport aren't the solution. There is no magic bullet. This sport is decades behind, which means that there's not one thing that you're going to be able to do and just sort of, oh, we'll make this change and that's the solution. Oh, let's have a drive to survive type series like F1. That'll be our, that'll solve it. That'll fix it. No, that won't fix it. It will take a lot of time um, and by, by smart people with experience to figure out what changes need to be made and what format might work. And then you will have some trial and error and it's not going to happen over one year. Mm. I remember Keith Mills talking about how he went about in- including the bid to to host the games in 2012. And one of his strategy strategies was to to get the newspapers on board, get the media on board and if if they were on board, they would create, they would have stories. And his pitch was, if if you're on board, you're going to have something to talk about. You're going to have something exciting to discuss for the next seven years. And and so that is a reason for you to get behind this. <laughs> sort of almost alleviating the pain points for them of trying to find good, good, interesting stories. And and as you say, if there is if there isn't a product there, if there isn't something that people will tune in and it is exciting where perhaps there is not long pauses between action, whether that is something you're watching live in the stadium or whether that is something you're watching on the TV um, that is dynamic, is, it has some pace. You mentioned that quick action. Um, so those trends that, that are happening, the fact that people have, have scanned your article and just taken out a couple of points, probably points to the fact that we need to be sharper in, in how we present sport going forward yeah and i think i think that's a good point i think you know you have because what you have with a lot of people i mean there are a lot of people who do get it 
and I'm getting calls and you know from people who do get it and understand and and, and want to engage further and, and and a lot of the response as well on social media was yeah this is this is the approach and I heard it this way before um, but there are, there are the frustrating part is where you have people involved in the sport or fans of the sport who you know in that in that example you gave of of Keith Mills you know as opposed to taking the approach of hey let's give them something and take away the pain points and let's give them something that they that's going to work for them that helps their business model mm-hmm. let's give them the stories that they want to tell about something that people want that their readers you know their viewers want to hear about as opposed to doing that what i hear from a lot of people you know, fans in the sport and certainly on social media is they're concerned. They, they haven't taken away, the sport hasn't taken away the pain points and the sport hasn't given media outlets like ESPN or BBC or whoever, haven't given them something that their viewers want or something they can take to their viewers and that's going to help with their business model. What I hear is, well, BBC doesn't like track or ESPN doesn't like track. They don't like track because the sport has for years presented itself as a charity case. Help us. We're worthy. We're, we're worthy to be helped. We're good people. We're a good sport. You should pay attention to us. You should show us. You should. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing. And it's frustrating because what happens is, as well is there's this vitriol towards the broadcasters for not showing track and film for not buying the rights to track and fill or for newspapers and news outlets to not cover track and fill. But what that does is it allows the people who have politicked and campaigned and applied for the jobs to be the leaders of the sport and who make large salaries to do so, it allows them to skate by without any responsibility because that is where that vitriol should be. It should be pointed at the people who are responsible for developing the product and making sure that the product is something that ESPN, BBC, or whoever media organizations want to have the rights to. That is what's happening in every other sport. They are, pay, they are clamoring to pay huge rights fees to televise the sports because those works are actually making themselves that valuable. I was privileged to, to be working in Sydney um, and to be in the stadium on that magic Monday, the 25th, September. Um, obviously you won. Um, Kathy Freeman's race, Jonathan Edwards, Gabby Zarbo and Sonia O'Sullivan, Paul Turgat, Gabri Selassie, Anya Garcia in the hurdles, it was absolutely stacked. And and maybe this is unfair of me to cherry pick this as an example, because 112 and a half thousand people turned out to see that, uh, not least Kathy Freeman's moment. Um, and But I, I can't remember the exact details of it, but very specifically, there was a response from the IWF at the time was, oh, hang on, we've messed that up. We've messed the, the scheduling up. I came away from that that stadium drunk with just joy watching an incredible night of athletics head to head competitions, which I know you 
you have promoted as you know as as a key feature of engaging people and it felt like uh, it was a step back where oh no we need to schedule and space out the finals one final at a time per night over nine days it felt like it was a move to try and maximize the number of people in a stadium rather than these quality experiences that make people want to come back again and again because i was i was hedonist at that coming out of that that stadium and wanted more and then to see the the, the following year to string out the finals oh now this is a little bit more painful for me to experience that same again um it feels like it's a reversal that's needed for that with more competition stacked finals exciting competition that that uh, get people engaged in the sport again i think i think i i hear you and and i think i think they may have gone through because that was that was 20 23 years ago i think that maybe it's gone through some some changes. I think they had the schedule about right now, to be honest, you know, at the Olympics and, and, and championships. And I want to be clear as well, you know, what I would, the, the whole, you know, sort of thing that I just went through before that, you know, about, you know, what needs to happen with the sport and my frustration is all related to professional track, not okay. championship track. And I think that that's another thing that we have to always distinguish between the two. When an athlete is representing their country at the Olympics or World Championships or Commonwealth Games, you look at the last few years, last year's World Championships in Eugene, last year's Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, great championships. I don't think people left those, you know, from a television perspective or in stadium disappointed. I think it's always compelling. And certainly the Olympics as well. That's very different. I don't think that that model, and I started my Twitter Twitter, uh, description, you know, sort of, you know, manifesto, if you will, of, you know, what should happen to the sport by, you know, setting that out to begin with. These are two separate things. And I think that the championship model is great, and I don't think it needs much change at all. Um, It's the the professional model, the Diamond League, and all of the things that, you know, these races and champions that happen outside of the the championships that happen every year. uh, um, That's where the problem is. But I think the championship track, I think they've gotten it about right. I think that, you know, if you're going to have, you have all of these events over uh, several days, over 10 days for, for a world championship, I think spreading it out a bit, you know, where you've got, you know, two or three great finals in an evening, you know, makes sense. But but not having all of the great races all in one day, then the other, you know, nine days are, you know, kind of not very desirable and probably doesn't work. Uh, so, but, but I think that, you know, I think they've gotten it about right. Maybe I'm just too impatient. (laughs) I'm too impatient. Uh, Maybe I just want that magic Monday experience again. (laughs) I I mean, obviously, Sydney was a a great, great uh, moment, and it just happened to all work out on that day. And and whoever said, you know, oh, we got it wrong, we should have scheduled it was kind of like, you know, how are you going to predict that? You know, how are you going to predict that Jonathan's going to do what he's going to do? And that, you know, you know, that, you know, you know, I, that, that Kathy's race is going to be just so iconic in the end. You know, you know, you can't even predict those things. It was probably somebody just talking, but ultimately, I think that they worked over the years to make sure that, that you know things are spread out a bit, but also that you got some good, you know, you got a good critical mass of finals. 
you know, on, on each night. And the thing, look, as well, is, you know, I think that's great about championship track, that, that way, which is one of the things that professional track is missing, is, is that it's not about, you know, what you talked about just then is great. But those are rare moments where you talked about me, you talked about Kathy, you talked about Jonathan, you talked about Gabby Zabo. We didn't compete against each other. We're just names doing something that you remembered that was great. And you saw us do something great. Track and field should not be about one athlete doing something great against seven unknowns. But that's what we've gotten to in this sport where the focus is less about competition. Like, you don't, you don't think about, you know, the World Cup and go, oh, yeah, I remember seeing, you know, Argentina, you know, Argentina, you know, <laughs> had a great competitor and all of the matches that you remember that are great matches are matches because of the competition between the two teams. And if it goes down to the wire and it, you know, it's great competition. That's what you want. That's what people get into as opposed to, you know, and, and, and probably the, one of the greatest things that ever happened to the sport and one of the worst things that happened to the sport, given the, the only reason it was one of the worst things is because of the people that were running it at the time is Usain Bolt. Now we've gotten to this point where because of Usain dominating and being such an electric person to watch and such a joy to watch and such an amazing athlete to watch, you knew he was going to win. So nobody was coming to see if he was going to win. People were coming to just see this amazing athlete do an amazing thing. Now the sport is constantly looking for another one of those and promoting every event as, hey, come see this person. What are we just doing time trials? Nobody wants to see that. It's not even sustainable. No other sport operates that way. Yeah. Interesting. Um, fascinated to see how at least your campaign and I think adding to your voice to it to to engage the conversation is is essential. And I notice e equally a, a trend of of athletes being part of the promotion, which needs to be they need to create their own future hey listen i'd love to ask you your um finally just about mj performance and what you provide how you're engaging with different sports teams taking of what you've learned over the years and and uh applying that to different environments what's uh what's the offer yeah, so now we, we've shifted quite a bit over the, when i started the company in 2007 uh, the, the biggest part of our business was training athletes. Um, so athletes from all different sports in their off seasons, NFL, NBA, Premier League footballers. And, um, and then we shifted to, you know, continuing to train athletes, but also, uh, consulting services for, uh, sports teams and Olympic federations and helping them to develop, uh, more effective, uh, training programs, injury rehabilitation programs and, uh, providing coach education. Um, as of last year, now we no longer train athletes in person. Um, the business is completely licensed um, and um, B two B. So we uh, we now work uh, uh, with other providers. We provide uh, training content, uh, training methodology, and training programming, uh, uh, consulting services, but primarily um, uh, uh, license the content to them to to sell to their use for their own teams or in some cases it's um it is um uh, other training centers and, and coaches uh that we license the content to to 
to provide, in most cases, digitally uh, to their clients. So it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's, it's a less, uh, we don't have much of a team like we used to in kind of a facility where, you know, everybody's training athletes and, you know, we've got lots of different athletes in different sports. We don't do that anymore, which was a lot of fun. But, but now from a business standpoint, you know, kind of as I mentioned before, you know, which products are the ones that are, that are selling best and which ones are, are sort of dragging on the business. And so you make those decisions. So um, um, the margins are much better on our consulting and licensing services. And so that's, that's what we're doing now. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and is that um, athletic development for predominantly, or is that something that you provide across nutrition, psychology, sleep development, for example? So, yeah, so with the training now, with the licensed uh, content, now it's all it's all athletic development um, and, and injury injury prevention. Uh, we don't do we, when when we were doing in person training and, and and operating out of a training center. We were yeah, we provide nutrition services, injury prevention services, sports science um, um, studies, and, and things like that. But yeah, now it's all just uh, just training uh, training content. And, and coach education around um, um, you know, injury prevention as well, and um, um, but but primarily um, all of the content is around helping athletes in all sports maximize their speed, strength, power, agility, and all of the different facets of athleticism. Mm, very good, very good. So it's a, a training and development um, resource almost for people to improve their knowledge and application in situ with those teams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And so what's next for you, Michael? What's the, what I'm, I'm no doubt you've got some further goals in front of you. What's, uh, what's stretching your thinking and your horizons? Mm. Yeah, right now I'm spending a lot more of my time uh, back to something that I you know, really started doing when I first retired doing a lot of work with corporations, helping them, uh understand a lot of speaking um and, and advising with uh, different companies on the uh, uh performance mindset um and how to you know overcome challenges build great teams um that can go out and overcoming the challenges that uh, that are inherent and in, you know in, in our basic goals that most most companies have and, and overcoming the challenges of uh, uh a business and uh, navigating those and the mindset. So sharing with them the mindset and uh, behaviors that are conducive to uh, to doing great things. So I've always worked um, with, uh, with sort of big multinational sort of Fortune 500 type companies, but now starting to work as well um, in the tech startup space um, with some of these uh, companies that are sort of doing the innovative great things you know that they're building for the for the future so uh so that's pretty exciting so yeah i'm enjoying that amazing uh, and i can only imagine that just from this conversation you, people have cherry picked a few examples of um of just how you can make sense of what you've experienced as an athlete as as a champion and uh and how you've applied that not just within your career troubleshooting injuries or approaching a big big competition but also afterwards uh in thinking about how you can make things better so michael thank you so much for coming on the podcast it was fascinating to listen to you real treat 
to hear the open progressive thinking and clarity that you have in your in your uh, approach so thank you so much absolutely thank you appreciate it Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. And we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.